We're going into week three of our series looking at the prayer that Jesus taught to his followers as a a model of how to pray. And before we think about the the next part of the the prayer, um, I just want us to think for a second about the phrase, the right side of history. One day soon, if you watch the TV, listen to the radio, and especially if you listen to the sort of debate segments uh, of our programs that you, you see or hear, you'll hear somebody throw out that phrase about being on the right side of history. And it'll be used in such a way to make it seem that to disagree with that viewpoint is to sign your own death warrant. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, is almost the, is really what they mean, rather than being on the right side. It portrays a, an inevitability to the view that that person holds. And it could be about climate change, it could be about vaccines, it could be about a football transfer, or a fashion choice, or it could be about sexuality. Don't be on the wrong side of history, be on my side. Or perhaps you won't hear it on the media, but you'll hear it from somebody you work with, a boss or a teacher in school, talking about a particular topic. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Get in line and put your convictions, your thoughts, your thinking to one side. Get in line. Be on the right side of history. Otherwise, you'll be like one of those people that back in the day bought a mini disc player. It's going to age the congregation a little bit. Some people are like, what is one of those? It's like a bit of technology that came in fractionally before like MP3 players and before you had a phone that could do everything. And some people were like, this is the next great big thing. And it went down the toilet quicker than you can say. It it was, or you could be like Prince, the musician Prince or the artist formerly known as Prince, who in 2010, I couldn't believe it was 2010, said this, the internet's completely over now. He went on to try and justify his opinion and he was completely wrong. We all want to be on the right side of history, don't we? We all want to make decisions that are going to fit with what is to come. Whether it be uh, making the right fashion choices, whether it be making sure that you've got sun cream on a day like today, be on the right side of history, or be pink and burning tonight. But we do have a surprisingly poor track record of being on the right side of history of predicting what the future will bring. Just ask anybody who invested in Blockbuster back in the day. That Blockbuster was like a, a video shop. And they, some people like this greatest thing ever, and then Netflix came in and ruined it all. Let's read together the next part of the Lord's Prayer. We're in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the glorious God in heaven, who in love has become our Father, and we've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks with Ian, we are to ask firstly then three things, three petitions. For God's name to be made holy, that's what hallowed means, For his kingdom to come and his will to be done. 
What does that mean? Well, Jesus gives us a clue by adding the last phrase after those three petitions. He gives us a a qualifying phrase. On earth, let these things happen on earth, in our lives, in our experience, as it already is in heaven. So this afternoon, we're firstly going to think about what is already true. We're going to pull back the curtain of heaven. And we're going to use that passage in Isaiah 6 that was read to us to give us a glimpse of what already, in true, or what already is true. Ask the question, how is it in heaven? And so Isaiah 6 opens and Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died at a specific point in history, Isaiah has a vision. And in that vision, He sees the curtains being pulled back. He sees into heaven itself and he sees the Lord, God himself. And incredibly, as he sees God himself, notice he's on a throne. High and lifted up. He's the center of everything. And as Isaiah goes on to tell, it seems to be some sort of temple, a place where people come to to worship God. He is the object of all worship and there are heavenly creatures there and these creatures the seraphim are praising him they cover their feet and they cover their eyes because they're not worthy of the object of praise the one on the throne and they listen to what he says and they reflect his goodness and greatness listen to what they say we've just sung it holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, if you want to say how, emphasize how special something is, you repeat the word to to bring home the emphasis. And so in the Bible, we've got examples. We've got the, the song of songs, or we've got the king of kings. We've even got the holy of holies, the, the inner part of the temple. When we let look into heaven, we hear this soundtrack playing out, holy, holy, holy. It's not just twice said, it's three times said. It's like you were saying to somebody in a room full, imagine we were all millionaires. Okay, bit of a stretch, I know, but still. Imagine then in this room of millionaires, there was a select group of billionaires. And they looked round on, on the rest of us like peasants. But in that select group of billionaires, there was one who was a trillionaire. And he looked down on all the billionaires and was just like, you haven't got much. Holy, holy, holy. This is who God is. But, but what does holy mean? We've just sung words that give us a clue as to what that's about, God's purity and his perfection. In its simplest form, to be holy means to be set apart or to be totally other, totally beyond. For those of you who are sat near the windows, okay, down this side, just just look out of the car park, okay? Just look at the selection of cars that have pulled in today. Okay, so we've got some big cars, we've got some small cars, old cars, new cars, washed cars, definitely quite a few unwashed cars, small, big, medium, 
Imagine now somebody pulled into the car park with a brand spanking new Ferrari. Gleaming red and stinking of wealth. In our car park. That's just a little idea, an illustration of what holy means to be completely other and better and greater. And as we peek into heaven, what we see is a king, a ruler who is that great, that perfect. And it's hard for us to believe, isn't it? It's hard for us to believe because even the best monarchs and rulers and leaders and bosses and teachers that we have are still flawed. But there's not one imperfection in God. In his character. In his dealings, in his actions. And as we look into heaven, we see one who is utterly holy and one who reigns on his throne. And then we ask the question, well, what sort of kingdom? He's a king. What sort of kingdom does he reign over? As we move out from the throne and we go into his territory. What sort of king is he? What is his kingdom marked by? And we find that it's a kingdom marked by compassion and atonement. Isaiah, in his vision, is in the the heavenly throne room. As he sees the awesome, perfect God, his first thought is, Oh no, I shouldn't be here. Woe is me. And he focuses in on on his lips, on on what he said. Woe is me, I, I ought not to be here. But what is it like under this king's kingdom for people like Isaiah? People who don't fit in in a perfect world. People who are not holy. Well, God doesn't say anything. But what happens is one of the angelic beings, heavenly beings, comes to Isaiah. Look down at verse 6. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. The thing that Isaiah knew was so far removed from what ought to be in heaven, his unclean lips. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When we think about kingdom, we think about character. What's it like to be under the rule and reign of the the king? And as we glimpse into heaven, what we see is that under this king, the overwhelming characteristic is of grace. Undeserved kindness shown to people. That's what God's kingdom is like. And notice finally, as we look into heaven and to the the heavenly throne room, we find that God's desire, his expressed will is followed perfectly. Firstly, by the angelic beings, but then, but then when God expresses his desire for, for somebody to go, he said, there's a job that needs to be done. I've got a message for my people. Who will go? 
And we find that in heaven, God's will is obeyed perfectly. And Isaiah steps up and says, I'll go. And so we find as we look into heaven, we find utter holiness. We find a glorious, grace-soaked kingdom. And we find obedience to what God desires and wants. This is what heaven is like in a glimpse that Isaiah 6 gives us. The holy God sat on his throne. His kingdom of grace and his will entrusted to and enacted by those whom he loves and accepts. Holiness, kingdom and will. But here's the thing. We as a people don't see heaven. We don't act as though heaven is the ultimate reality. We are, well, we naturally think that the world revolves around us, don't we? So when somebody announces, this is for tea, our first thought is, well, is that what I want? It's no surprise for, uh, for centuries, the human race thought that the sun went round us. I think that's quite apt because that's what we're like. We think that the world revolves around us. We think that all we can see is all that there is. And we naturally think that we're at the centre of it all. But if we, we could only see more clearly what is more true. If day by day we could see the heavenly reality then what would we pray? If we knew that Isaiah's vision is not something that he dreamt of one night, but is reality, how would we pray? We would pray as it is in heaven. Let it be on earth. So our second point, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth. All three of the petitions that Jesus gives to his followers uh, are governed by that qualifier. Let it be on earth as it is in heaven. What is unalterably true in the heavenly realms, but is obviously not yet fully true in the earthly realm. That's the problem, isn't it? Because we can see heaven really clearly through the eyes of Isaiah. And then we look back down and go, it's clearly not like that here. That's not the world that I live in. That's not the world that I inhabit. It's not the world of my own heart. God's name is set apart and honoured in heaven. But here, people scorn and mock God in their lives, in their thoughts, and yes, most obviously in their words. It's not right. In heaven, God reigns on his throne. He's the king eternal. There's no dispute about who's in charge, about who sets the rules, or who will be in charge forever. The Bible tells us the story of somebody who tried to challenge God's throne and was thrown out of heaven. The Bible gives him a name, Satan. Satan's attempt to throw God off his throne was futile. Used by God to bring greater glory to himself. But we live in a world where we all naturally want to throw God off the throne. 
Satan is no equal of God. The book of Job tells us that to even come after one of God's people, Satan must ask permission of God. And we could think about how the kingdoms that we live in are not marked by grace, but are marked by revenge and selfishness and greed. God's will is perfectly obeyed in heaven, but we know that it's not here. And we know that maybe most obviously in our own lives. We know what it is for God to have said, this is what, how you ought to live, and we know that we don't. We have failed, even just looking at the Ten Commandments, to honour our parents. Or that we've not honoured the authorities that God has placed over us. Let alone to have honoured God's expressed desire that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And so, because the reality on earth does not match the truth in heaven, we pray for three things. That heaven's glorious reality may spread to our earth, to our world, and to our own lives. Four reflections for us on these petitions. The first is this. This is a prayer that humbles us. They take our eyes off ourself and they turn it towards heaven. Ian talked a little bit about this last week and we're going to repeat it because it bears repeating. This is what God does often. I've just mentioned the Ten Commandments. When you think about the order of the Ten Commandments, how does God give it to us? He gives it in this way. He says, here are commandments, the first four, that point you towards me. And then the next six are about how you interact with people. In the same way, the Lord's Prayer says, firstly, you need to think about God. Focus on him, not yourself. By praying this prayer, we are to prioritize God's priorities. We are forced to acknowledge that our concerns, my concerns, are secondary to God's. It's not that they're unimportant or that they're unnecessary, but they're not primary. So it's your name, God that is to be made holy. Your kingdom, God, that is to come. Your will to be done. You before me, yours before mine, creator before creature. By praying this prayer, we are recognising that it's firstly and foremostly about God. And that's the best place for us to be. We are not made to be on the throne. We are made to be stood before the throne worshipping. And so as we pray these prayers and these petitions for God's kingdom to come, we are recognising that it's God ultimately who needs to work in this world if the world's going to change. We're saying to ourselves, even as we pray, I, I cannot bring God's kingdom. Only God can. We are recognising that it's God's glory, not ours, that is important. So we, we started the service with Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. 
And then it goes on to expose the, the foolishness of worshipping anything else other than God himself. Do we pray this prayer and we say, God, you first. Secondly, this is a prayer that honours its author. We've seen the heavenly reality, but as Jesus is teaching his disciples this prayer, unbelievably, he's already starting to answer it. Picture the scene. Jesus is on the mountainside. This is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's sitting down with his followers to teaching them about, about the kingdom. And he says, as he says these things, that we would pray that God's name would be made holy, we would find that the one who says it is the one who bears God's name. John Stott helpfully defines why this prayer is talking about God's name. Let your name be made holy or hallowed. He said the name stands for the person who bears it, for his character and his activity. God's name is who he is. And it is all that he has done. God's name encompasses his character, his kindness and his patience, his love and his grace, his justice and his joy. Again, go back to Psalm 115 and see how the the psalmist phrases, to your name be the glory, and then he reflects on what God's name is. You can look it up later. So it encompasses God's character, his name, but also then his acts. What God does. His acts in creation, in making this wonderful world. His acts in calling to himself a people through Abraham and making promises and fulfilling those promises. His acts of saving people from themselves. His redemption of people through the shedding of blood. All of this is caught up in God's name. Every great and small act that he has done as we read about it in his word, as we see it in our own lives. God is at work and his work shows that his, who he is in his name. So when we pray for God's name to be made holy and then we see this is Jesus. This is Jesus who in Matthew chapter 1, when we learn about his story, his, his backstory, if you will, And we're told that Jesus is given the name Emmanuel. God with us. There is a human being at this point in time when this is written who is walking the earth, who is bearing God's name and is God himself. And he is glorifying God's name as he encounters people, as he interacts with his followers and with the crowds, as he shows compassion, as he heals, as he teaches as he shows them the way that they might be right with God. And he is the one who teaches this prayer. He is, as Matthew tells us in chapter 1, again, he is in the line of the kings. He is the king that has been promised. He's the one who, when he comes, whose cousin looks out and says, you need to repent now, guys. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. What's changed? Jesus has come. The king has entered his world. Jesus himself, as he begins to preach, says the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And Jesus is the one who does the will of the Father. In every moment of every day, in every act and in every way, Jesus obeys the desire and will of the Lord Almighty. And so Matthew's going to take us to the end, uh, towards the end of his book, and Jesus before he is crucified. And Jesus will tell us that he is submitting to the Father's will, even though it will cost him his life, even though it will mean suffering hell, as he takes on the guilt of sinful people. Not my will, but yours, he said. Jesus is the holy seed at the end of that Isaiah 6 reading we read. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, your name be made holy on earth as it is in heaven, there's this great truth that God has already begun to answer this prayer before we've even prayed it. God is committed to the project of the kingdom. And that brings us to worship Jesus. When we pray for God's name to be made holy and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, we look at the one who teaches us to pray and say, thank you that you're already doing this. That the wheels are already in motion. That this is a certain promise to be fulfilled. This prayer will be answered. Undoubtedly. For Jesus was already there then. And we've seen more. as More than they had then. Of how God has answered this prayer. And we can go into the history of the church. And we can see how Jesus has been honoured. As he has brought his kingdom in. Thirdly, a prayer that gives us a homing signal to follow today. What happens when we pray for God's kingdom to come? We are being formed to think not of ourselves, but him, and to define our progress and fruitfulness in his terms, not ours. So I've called it a homing signal. I confess to you that I've learned all I know about homing signals from James Bond films and Mission Impossible. So this might not be accurate. But one of those bleeping homing signals that bleeps louder and quicker as you get closer to where you're supposed to be. As we pray these prayers, we are being conditioned, shaped to move towards what is right, to what is good, to what is true. It leads us to a definition of kingdom defined by the king. Where we would bless and honour people in the way that Jesus does. And so we could turn back a page to Matthew chapter 5. And we would see the character of the kingdom. That we would bless and honour people like the poor in spirit. Or those who mourn the meek, or those who desire righteousness, the merciful, or the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. As we pray this prayer, as we look to the King, we begin to want and love and act according to Him, not according 
to ourselves. And it goes against the natural leanings of our heart where we would want to honour people who impress us. We would want to honour people who we'd quite like to be like. We want to honour the, the rich or the outwardly successful, the impressive, the popular. Uh, Jesus turns it on its head. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we begin to want what Jesus wants and to love what Jesus loves and to honour what Jesus honours. And we pray, let your will be done. It shapes us in our, in, in our relationships with people and especially with each other. When we get in a, a dispute or a discussion with God's people, if both of us are being shaped and praying, let your will be done, it takes the edge off our natural inclination, which says, I want my will to be done. And when two people are brought together saying, God, let your will be done, we're going in the right direction. Finally, a prayer that hopes for the return of Jesus. Let your kingdom come. When Jesus was preaching and saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near, it anticipates a day when the kingdom of God will be fully here. When God's will will be fully done, obeyed, delighted in. When all creatures, great and small, will acknowledge the holiness of God. And the Bible tells us there will come a day when Jesus will return and he will make all things new. A day when all the bad things will come untrue to steal a line from Tolkien. When the king of heaven will be married to his people in eternal joyful bliss. When sin and guilt and sorrow and shame will be no more. When nobody will doubt or question the rule of the king. And so we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done and we look forward to a day when the glory of God will fill the earth and nobody will doubt and nobody will turn but all will worship the king. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We want that. We want that as we experience all the brokenness of this world. We want it when we see the slowness of our own progress in becoming like Jesus. We want it every time we turn on the news and see a new atrocity. Let your kingdom come. We want it as we see our, our interactions with one another. Let your will be done. Because it's sometimes hard. And we're supposed to long, not for, in a sense, this world to be improved but ultimately we are to long for a new world where the king will rule and reign forever when we pray this prayer it leads us into the the final words of the bible and in, in revelation chapter 22 the spirit and the bride say come they're saying this to jesus the king and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. 
And he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the writer of Revelation says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. When we pray these words, these three petitions, we are longing for the day when Christ will return and this world will will reach a new stratospheric joy because we'll be done with guilt and done with sin and we will be all that we were made for. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the right side of history. And now, as we wait for that day, as we long for that day, the right side of history is to be found in seeking the will of God and following it. To follow and worship the King whom God has sent, Emmanuel. And seeking to honour the name of God with our whole lives. Including with our lips and our voices as we sing praise to him but then in every other area of life, recognizing that as followers of the God-man Jesus, as Christ Christians, we can bring glory and honor to God as we follow him.